Hello, I'm Kate Chauvirich and welcome to the SEDEP podcast. Based in France and operating internationally, we are a global executive education club where minds meet, grow and succeed together. SEDEP is a collaborative learning community of leading international organizations from diverse and non-competitive industries. Rooted in the real world and driven by the real-life challenges of our community, we co-create leadership development programs with innovative, highly relevant and actionable learning. Our mission is to work together to develop leaders and create purpose-driven, agile and sustainable organizations. In an ever-changing and uncertain world, we choose to work together to make the world a better place for us all. This is the second episode in a series of six podcasts with Jules Goddard, SEDEP faculty, renowned philosopher, author, and fellow of the Centre for Management and Development at London Business School. Jules has also recently been appointed to the Council of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. In this podcast series, we examine six different philosophical experiments with managerial practice and ultimately address the key question of, why should we bring philosophical experimentation into the heart of business and what can we learn? In this episode, we will explore experimenting with strategic planning, and in particular, the idea that the art of strategy is to stay one step ahead of the need to be efficient. So welcome to the Set Up Podcast, Jules. It's great to have you here once again. Before we get into the detail of today's theme, I believe you have an interesting story to get us started. Tell us more. Hello, Kate. And yes, I'd like to start this episode with the Red Bull story. Red Bull has become the most successful soft drink competitor to Coca-Cola in its history. So what's its secret? Answer, perhaps, a smaller can, a higher price, and a horrible taste. So what does this tell us about where businesses are going wrong when it comes to strategy? Well, instead of playing Coke at its own game, as Pepsi had always done, it invented a new game. After all, Pepsi thought that if they could make a cola that tasted better and cost less, it would win against Coke. And in any economics textbook, it would have done, of course. But in the human world, with its cognitive biases, it didn't, and indeed it couldn't. Economics has led us to believe that price is used by buyers as a measure of cost, not quality, and that buyers evaluate competing products according to their functionality and utility, and that the lower the price, the better, that competition is essentially about efficiency that winners are typically the cost leaders in their industry, and that the benefits of a larger market share and higher sales revenues lie mainly in economies of scale. As a result, we are baffled by the success of Red Bull. So what did Red Bull do? Well, Red Bull worked to a very different set of principles. It employed psychology. It invented a wholly new category, one that it could own. It chose not to compare itself with Coke, or differentiate itself from Coke, or make claims of superiority to Coke. It was happy to be itself, to invent its own way of being, its own aura, tone of voice, and combination of symbols. It tapped into an aspect of human psychology that economics does not recognize. For example, the idea that a product can have a personality, and the idea that the choices that consumers make in the marketplace are essentially emotional choices that cannot be mapped onto a rational scale of utility. In some sense, we are, each of us, what we buy. As Jeremy Bullmore, former chairman of J. Walter Thompson, put it, consumers create brands as birds build nests from bits and pieces that they come across. Red Bull 
has put out all sorts of messages into the marketplace, and their customers have interpreted these messages in ways that they find very appealing. So Red Bull has certainly disrupted the market in this way. Do you have any further examples? Well, I think Dyson is possibly another example. Dyson, of course, is the maker of vacuum cleaners, fans and hair dryers. I think they're a good example. Dyson will only launch a new product if it can command a price significantly higher than that of its nearest competitor. This is James Dyson's method of inspiring his designers and engineers to come up with genuinely superior products in the eyes of users, a product that meets their needs, tastes and preferences in radically new ways. He knows that the most successful firms in an industry are invariably those that command the highest prices. Well, that's surprising. Um, Is there any hard evidence for this? Yes, there's some quite strong evidence. In 2013, a famous Deloitte study of 25,000 US firms over a 50-year period, I think probably the biggest research study of its kind, discovered that 72 companies had consistently outperformed their competitors over this entire period. They were long-term winners. Deloitte chose to call them miracle workers. And none of these 72 firms were the cost leaders in their industry. On the contrary, almost all of them were premium, high-priced players. They all believe that the art of business is to innovate at a pace that enables them to increase their prices faster than their competitors. By contrast, the losers tend to go for operational efficiency, invariably at the cost of quality and a brand image and of consumer appreciation. So what are the new rules of competition? Well, I think we should take all rules with a pinch of salt. These rules, too, will be found wanting at some point, I expect. But Deloitte's have tentatively distilled their findings into three guiding principles. First, better before cheaper. In other words, compete on differentiators other than price. Second, revenue before cost. That is, prioritize increasing your revenues over reducing your unit costs. And third, price before growth. That is, grow your revenues through higher prices rather than bigger volumes. Now, to an economist, these principles make no sense at all. Indeed, they challenge almost everything I was taught at university by my economics professors. By contrast, behavioral scientists are increasingly showing that efficiency is a false god. It's difficult, in fact, to think of a single product or service category, whether it's bread or bicycles or buildings, where the most efficient player is the most wealth creative. The world's increasing prosperity is created by both greater efficiency, of course, but also by greater quality. And in most industries, the prices are climbing faster than the costs are falling, I think. So in practical terms, what do business leaders need to focus on within their organizations in order to be the most wealth creative in their market? Well, here's just one thought. Let's think about annual plans, strategic plans. I think plans might serve the company better if their purpose were to justify higher market prices than to find ways of lowering unit costs. For too long, strategy has been obsessed by the economics of utility and functionality rather than the psychology of perception and emotion. The strategic question that brings the best out of an organization, that taps into its curiosity and creativity and courage, is this. What do we have to do differently 
to justify raising our prices by, let's say, 20%. By contrast, the worst and most perilous and soul-destroying question is this. What do we have to do to shave 20% off the costs of the product without the customer noticing? So plans perhaps should be full of ideas rather than numbers. I think so, absolutely. If we were to do so, our strategic conversations would be about the truth of our assumptions rather than the achievability of our targets. The latter, after all, is a futile conversation to which there cannot be a rational answer, if only because the future is unknown and unknowable, whereas the former conversation lends itself to creativity and invention. Are many of our businesses' assumptions false or flawed in some way? Well, some are, I think. I mean, in marketing, my own special area, the concepts that I grew up with and indeed taught to my MBA students over many years, such as market segmentation, brand positioning, competitive differentiation and customer loyalty, have been shown to be deeply misconceived. The present-day theory, summed up by one of its most distinguished inventors, Barr and Sharp, is that being distinctive wins against being different. So, what can we conclude from this episode? What are the key takeaways? Well, I think we're not, as economists portray us, we're fallible creatures, we're irrational, we're unpredictable. The great creations of science and art, and may I add business enterprise as well, are the result of exploration, leaving the beaten track, taking the path less traveled, trying out unpopular or bizarre ideas, and occasionally bumping into the truth by accident, as it were. We happen upon the truth and bring something genuinely new into the world. The market, I think, is much closer to being a game of discovery than an economic exercise. And to borrow a phrase from Albert St. Georgi, the Nobel Prize-winning biochemist, the skill of business ultimately resides in seeing what everybody else has seen, but noticing what no one else has noticed. What particular insights can philosophy bring into this topic? Well, philosophers have a name for my argument so far, and that name is the category mistake. This was an idea of Gilbert Ryle, an Oxford philosopher working in the middle of the 20th century. We go wrong, he believed, when we miscategorize a phenomenon. We believe it to be one thing when in fact it's another. For example, we think of a human being as a mechanism, subject to the laws of physics, rather than a person with a mind subject to free will, and we treat one another as such. I would suggest we often place business in the wrong category. We think of it as a rational activity, like doing a jigsaw puzzle where there is a right answer. We think of buyers and sellers as maximizers of utility, judging products and services against measurable criteria of effectiveness and efficiency. But in reality, business is a game of psychology. It works to irrational principles like human nature itself. It accords much more closely with the discoveries of Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. In other words, we are led by emotion rather than reason. We are wired to be cognitively biased. We are, after all, herd creatures, heavily influenced by what everyone else around us is doing. And of course, some of us drink Red Bull. (laughs) Very insightful, Jules. Thank you so much. This is the end of today's episode and we look forward to next time where we will be discussing ways of experimenting with employment. Jules is the co-director of SEDEP's Management and Philosophy Programme, which explores philosophical experimentations in managerial practice and how to use philosophical analysis 
to push the limits of contemporary management. You can find more information about this program on the SEDEP website, www.sedep.fr. And if you'd like to read more about the themes raised in this podcast, Jules has recently launched a new book called Business Experimentation, a practical guide for driving innovation and performance in your business, which is available online and in all good bookstores. Thanks again, Jules, and until next time.